Welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast, helping you invest well, understand money and achieve the best tax outcomes. Your hosts today are Andrew Sykes, Chris Oates and Young Han. Hey guys, welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast, where we're going to be helping you save, create and protect your money. I'm Andrew Sykes, and I'm joined in the studio today by Young Han. Hi, everyone. And Chris Oates. G'day, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking our everyone's favourite topic, property. And also joining us to help with that, we've got Julian Muldoon, Julian's director and founder of One Group Property. G'day, Julian. G'day, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us, mate. So we're going to unpick a bit on property and have a bit of a deep dive in that. But before we get in, uh, I'd ask you to subscribe to our podcast at our landing page, rsm.com.au forward slash talk big, where you can also leave us a question. If you've got any questions you want answered on the podcast, go to the landing page and leave it there. Okay, guys, so let's have a talk about property. Did you hear about the coastal property sold for 10 mil at Molly Milk? 10 mil for a coastal oh, yeah. property. Oh, wow. yeah. Didn't that only, they only bought that a few years ago for something like 2.6 million. That's, that's a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> like six years time, they made like seven mil for doing nothing. They didn't do any improvement or anything. Well, that's a pandemic and property. And maybe Julian can tell us, are you seeing things like that around the country, Julian? Oh, look, I think that's definitely an extreme case. Uh, well, you'd hope so. If you've got aspirations to own a beach house one day, you'd hate to think that's what you're up against. Uh, but look, without doubt, across the country, you know, coastal and lifestyle regions are seeing absolutely obscene growth. And it's actually a little bit scary for those people that are looking to transition to those areas to live because they're saying, well, you know, if I'm moving from a capital city to a, essentially a regional area, I'll always make more money in the capital city. So it's an easy step down price-wise. But now we're starting to see that it might be a bit of a step up to go from, you know, central Canberra to maybe living in a coastal town. Because so, they can't go overseas. That's, I think that's what it is. People just or, will... or is it a change in dynamic where people are saying, no, it's, there's more lifestyle, there's more benefit, I can work from home, so I'd rather live in a regional centre. Yeah, it makes it harder for the uh, retirees planning on downsizing to the coast nowadays. Well, I think it's just changing their their options, isn't it really? I mean, maybe that acre property with sea views has turned into the two-bed villa unit near the high street now. So I think it's going to be a bit of an alignment of people's expectations for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think that there's a number of reasons driving it, changing the way that we can work and live, but also some sectors have just had amazing growth. And I think a lot of the money you're seeing flowing to those higher-end properties is coming from you know people running businesses that have boomed during these times as well. Yeah, so Julian, I mentioned a bit about One Group and your founder and director. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we get too far into property. Yeah, sure. Uh, so One Group Property Advisory was established about five years ago, but my business partner, Tao Lilos up in Sydney, myself down here in Melbourne, uh, we've both been in the space for about a decade now. and uh, We have grown the business to a national offering, but essentially Eastern Seaboard is where our three offices are. And uh, we're a property investment advisory business, so people come to us when they want to put their money into property, direct property assets, and then our research and buyer's agent team go out there and execute the brief for them. So we do uh, hundreds of transactions a year, and we're buying all over the country. So we tend to have pretty good insight into what's happening. Um, so we'll be able to share some of that experience and expertise with you guys today and hopefully help the listeners make better property decisions. 
Excellent. So you, you're the man to tell us about what's happening nationally. Well, it's absolutely booming. And I don't think you need me to tell you that. I think everyone knows that, especially if you own a property, you're licking your lips. And if you don't own a property, you're nervous and anxiously trying to get into one. And that's probably the, the interesting you know, challenge with the current landscape. And there's a serious amount of optimism that flows through the community when the property is firing, because you can see that you bought a property for a million bucks and now it's worth 1.5, 1.6, maybe even 2 million if you're up in Canberra, you know, only within the last couple of years. And naturally that gives people a lot of confidence to A, buy more property or B, look to spend money in other avenues, which we'll probably see more of when we get out of these lockdowns. And I think the lockdown certainly, you know, heated up the market. But as we get into higher vaccination rate, the borders are opening, do you think the demand going to drop? Well, I think people will have more distractions, more positive distractions. Like one thing's for sure at the moment, there isn't much else to do with your time and to do with your money. Now, we even see this just from a client communication point of view. People are around more, they're easier to get onto. And they're doing some searching themselves. They're doing some research and reading themselves. Whereas that stuff's definitely going to change. I mean, when you can start to take a holiday, when you can attend weddings and you can socialise again, I mean, you're definitely going to be focused on something other than property. But at the moment, vaccine numbers, COVID numbers, restrictions and property prices are probably you know, the most important and relevant things on anyone's mind. Yeah, and I think where we talk about demand, it's part of it comes from in such a so low interest rate environment where it's so cheap to borrow and makes yeah. it a bit easier to get into the property. And there is talk about macro prudential changes and increasing, I guess, the the testing rate for with interest rates, making sure that doing that stress test. How do you think that's going to impact the market? Well, I think there's different segments. And, yeah, that we did see that macro prudential change come through last week. And it was really just a, a small change of you know, potentially 5% of people's borrowing capacity uh, but it will impact on investors who you know, might be holding a lot of debt if they're looking to upsize the home. And I think we need to see bigger changes come through before we see any real uh, movement downwards in the property market demand. And generally speaking, listening to Louis Christopher from SQM Research over the weekend, he was saying previous um, regulation has meant that it takes, or has shown us it takes about six months to come into play. So we're still going to see a lot of buying and, and really high prices over the next four to six months. And then we'll see whether that change and any further changes actually slow things down at all. But you'd have to say if you're spending $10 million on a beach house, you're probably not too concerned with your borrowing capacity dropping by 5%. No, you're probably right. We talk about macro prudential changes, but what about other regulatory changes like uh, lockdown easing? Do you think once we see Sydney, Melbourne, uh, to a lesser extent Can- Canberra come out of lockdown, do you think that's going to impact on the market? Well, one thing we actually need to see is more stock come on. And these lockdowns do hinder people renovating their homes, preparing for sale. And they also prepare people's ability to think bigger about where they want to live and be uh, and spend their time. So I think, if anything, it probably slows down the listing and increases the demand because people are stuck in their homes thinking too much about their next property or their next, you know, their lifestyle asset. We've seen a number of clients who have never holidayed in coastal regions, don't actually enjoy, especially in Victoria, the cold water, but they've gone down and bought beach houses because they want to feel like they're progressing. They see the rise in those markets. They want to tap into the growth. And, you know, there's a very good chance that in two, three, four years' time, they'd rather be sailing over in Mykonos than down in Rosebud 
in the 16 degree weather, uh, enjoying the rain with the kids and having an ice cream. So I do think we could see some sell off potentially, but it's also shown people that there's another way of living. Yeah, so common sense says uh, risk is increasing as price goes up. So listening to what you said then, you think the risk profile of that kind of property is going to increase in the next two or three years? Well, what's going to be difficult to what what is difficult to measure is whether there's going to still be an increased demand coming through for these types of coastal and regional properties. Because um, at the moment, if you buy a, a coastal property, for example, and you run the numbers on short-term rental over Christmas, it's cash flow positive for you to have it for the rest of the year. Whereas if rates go to four or five percent. If more people are traveling overseas than locally and you're not cash flow positive on the asset and all of a sudden you're starting to work out where you want to invest your own money in other assets or even lifestyle you know, events like weddings overseas, for example, then you might start to look at your numbers and say, look, it doesn't make sense that we own $1.5 million in a property we see three times a year. Uh, so it's definitely a chance. I mean, is it going to be an expensive sell-off? I, I wouldn't have thought so. And you know, as we see immigration come back, I mean, that's going to add another layer of demand and and local tourism too. Yeah, I think the um, you're right. I think the the Bali weddings people are going to be pretty keen to get overseas, and people have been putting off their weddings, so they'll be wanting to travel. That's for sure. And we sort of look at well, where the property market and what we think is going to happen. But if we go back a couple of steps through the pandemic, what's the probably the most surprising thing you've seen happening nationally at the moment? Well, the other thing we haven't really taken into consideration is a lot of people paying these big numbers for these properties haven't even seen them. And, you know, we see that all over the country. Uh, there's online auctions happening where you know, you've got, you're up against buyers that have never walked through the property and they're throwing huge money at it. And that's, that's huge. I mean, to, to tell an agent, look, I'm just going to get you to put me on FaceTime if you could just walk around and show me how the property presents for the next four to six minutes. And then I'm going to put $1.9 million into this beautiful apartment in an area that I've only been to once or twice. And that was 10 years ago. Now that's pretty fascinating. Uh, and, and if you think about any property, anyone, you know, it bought pre COVID, it was maybe two to three inspections, a building inspection. You might take a family friend through, seek counsel off that uncle friend who's, you know, who's done a lot of developments, but yeah, a lot of people at the moment are just uh, almost seeing it as online shopping. Yeah, I can't agree more. We we were having that in Canberra market when we did not have any cases. We had like people from Melbourne and Sydney coming to do the auction and just they throwing another 200, 300 on top of what we used to. Um, so what are the main differences between Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane markets? Well, I think if we look at them from a, a cycle point of view uh, or a cyclical aspect, they've all moved at different times this year. So Melbourne and Sydney were pretty close with how they ramped up at the start of the year, but Melbourne went really aggressively from Jan through to March. And we saw all property assets move except for apartments. Whereas in Sydney, Sydney started a little bit later this year and has gone for longer. So Melbourne's registered about 10 to 12% growth in the 12 months um, to now, whereas Sydney's registered nearly 20%. So Sydney went harder and for longer, which is very typical of Sydney and all property asset classes have grown there. So whether you're invested in townhouses, apartments or houses, you've really seen double digit growth. So Sydney's one of those markets that moves hard and everything moves, whereas Melbourne's a little bit more patchy. And when you go to Brisbane, and Brisbane's been moving pretty significantly since even last year through COVID. I mean, a lot of people were migrating there. And then this year it went from, uh, you know, last year was a typical Brisbane market, maybe four to six to 8% growth. Whereas this year, Brisbane's launched like Sydney 
And we've seen some cases 20 and 30% growth in different suburbs, inner city Brisbane, which we really haven't seen up there for about 15 years. And Brisbane's in that cycle right now. And because there is no advertised price in a lot of cases, there's no statement of information like we have in Victoria talking about comparable sales by the agent. Uh, it's very difficult for people from, say, Sydney to price. So if you're moving from a Coogee up to uh, Brisbane, you might have a couple of million dollars there to invest. And there's no way that you can price the property other than going by the agent's guidance. And in most cases, agents are saying, we've got no idea where this is going to land. Uh, you just got to put your best offer in. So we've seen some huge, huge prices up there in Brisbane. It's, it's the most aggressive market at the moment in the country. Do, do you think that keeps going with the Olympics announcement? Are we going to see a decade of growth out of Brisbane potentially? I think if you speak to any of the agents in Brisbane, they'll tell you, yes, that you know, the Olympics are coming and it's going to be double digit for the next 10 years and median price is going to be five mil. But I mean, I mean the reality around it is um, the Olympics brings a lot of optimism more so for investors than for owner-occupiers. And it definitely puts the lens on a few key pockets around Brisbane, like Bull and Gabba and you know, Dutton Park, where you've already got the Cross River Rail and now you've got a lot of investment happening there with, um, with, with different uh, pieces of infrastructure for the Olympics. Uh, but I think more than anything, it just gets everyone taking Brisbane a little bit more seriously. We've, we've invested up there and, and been in that market for, you know, for over a decade and we've always spoken highly of it. And it's always been one of those places that more people have negative stories about than positive stories uh, from an investment point of view. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that they've taken their thinking of you know, inner city units with views or you know, dual lock house and land packages in the outer corridors. And they're always fraught with risk. But when you actually look at Brisbane itself and you look at beautiful period homes, close to good school catchments and high streets, all the basic stuff, I mean, you really can't go wrong. And the yields are good. And in most cases, it's an affordable market, especially if you're coming from Canberra, you know, Sydney or Melbourne. So yeah, the Olympics will definitely bring optimism. And I think, you know, a lot of the infrastructure projects that are coming through are already going to significantly improve Brisbane. So I think it's an amazing opportunity for anyone that's a long-term investor, um, regardless of the Olympics, but it definitely helps. So you mentioned before you touched on uh, immigration. Now, we do expect uh, previously we'd had a couple of hundred thousand people a year coming into the country. Pandemic has seen that stop. What do you think is going to happen once immigration kicks off again? What kind of impact are we looking for there? It is fascinating when you look at the fact that our population is declining in places like Sydney, which are I believe based on recent data, losing anywhere between three to 5,000 people a month, but the property market's still growing by you know, 20%. And as we know, 20% is a, uh, an average, means that there's been areas that have probably grown at 30 and 40. So you have to go back and look and say, what happened in 2018? The market dipped by 10%. Now, we still had immigration up around 250,000 people, net overseas migration. So you still had a quarter of a million new people coming to the country and the property market dropped. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's all about people. More people doesn't equal more, uh, more growth in property prices. But it does bring more demand over the medium term because if you're immigrating, you might rent for 12 months while you get settled, make sure it's the right job, work out where your family and your networks are going to be. But then you need to get your, your asset. You need to get a property, a home. So in most cases, it takes about 24 months for, for us to see that impact. So you would say that if we start to see some immigration coming back in 2022, possibly 2023, 24, there's going to be another layer of demand that comes through, which is going to be pretty significant. Okay. You also mentioned about people, many people actually joining on the auction 
through FaceTime and Zoom. Um, what are the tips for navigating auctions during this boom time? Jeez, it's really challenging, isn't it? Have as much money as you can. That would be the biggest tip. <laughs> a good poker face. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, look, it is tough. And I think the, the, the thing with auctions are they're, they're transparent and that makes them, in my opinion, uh, a better way to compete and negotiate. I think there's, unfortunately, there's too much reliance on the information you're receiving from the agent um, when you're in a private sale negotiation or expression of interest. You could be bidding against no one or you could be bidding against three people that are nowhere near the mark. So an auction's great because I can see that Andrew's just put his hand up at 1.1 and I can see that he's getting a bit nervous and he's talking to his wife now and he's not sure whether he wants to go any higher. And that's great to have that intel, but obviously it is also extremely nerve-wracking and it's a serious intensity around an auction that um, does create some anxiety. So I think the first thing you've got to do is get to as many auctions as you can just to observe them, just to get comfortable with the environment itself. Um, the other thing you really got to be mindful is you got to know what the property is worth in that market. A lot of underquoting happening and be realistic going in as to what chances you have. We see a lot of people get disappointed where a property sells and really there were no chance whatsoever. And they chewed up a lot of mental energy and time preparing for an auction that they had a 20% chance on, but they were already visualizing themselves in that asset, in that home. Um, so be realistic. Get someone to do the pricing for you independently because our biases can come in and we, we think we're pricing appropriately but we're, we're not and then just get experience in those environments so that when you, you start to see the bidding come through you're experienced in, in what type of situations can play out um, but I also don't believe in the the myth that the first bidder never gets it so if you're a bit nervous I think the best thing you can do is put the first bid in just to get things started yeah it's a lot uh, clicking clicking the bid buttons a lot uh, probably a lot less nerve-wracking than just putting the paddle up in front of a whole crowd of people <laughs> yeah, do you have to have your cameras on up there? How are they running the Zoom auctions in Canberra? I haven't actually attended one, but wouldn't it be the same rule is before you go into an auction, understand what you want to pay, do your research, set your limit? Yeah, I think it's a fear of missing out part that plays big. So they people go in with a, a kind of price line, but then as soon as there's a you know debating going on and and people get competitive and they just you know fear of missing out kicks in and they just you know for the something that they can't afford to. Yeah, and you're right. And look, Andrew touched on probably the most important, which I didn't mention, and that's not exceeding your levels of, of comfort. And I think you've got to set that and re-ask yourself that question multiple times leading up to the auction because most clients that we have will set their limit and they'll be very measured. And on the morning of the auction, they'll say, no, actually, we've actually, we'd like to offer another 10% if it gets there. You've got to say to yourself, what would I be willing to lose this property at? If I wake up tomorrow and there's a headline of property sold and it wasn't me, what is that number that I would say, yeah, they can have it at that level? Uh, because I think sometimes your people do start to readjust the goalposts midway through the auction, which is exactly what they're designed for. So you mentioned before, Julian, yeah, we spoke about Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and you mentioned before that Sydney, everything just seems to go up all the time, but Melbourne can be a bit patchy. There can be suburbs that perform. What are some of those consistencies across performing suburbs? I mean, what, what do you look for when you're out there looking for a high-performing property or suburb? Yeah. I think the key thing it's always got to come back to is supply and demand and in most cases, and affordability, sorry, you know, affordability is is absolutely paramount because you can't, there's no point investing in a property you can't afford to hold in harder times and in good times. So for example, if rates are going up potentially one day to five and 6%, if that property becomes unaffordable, you need to sell it. So it doesn't matter how good 
the investment drivers are. It doesn't matter how good the high street is, the school catchment, if, if you can't afford it, it's a pointless investment. So affordability would be number one and making sure you run the numbers with your accounting and financial planning teams to kind of stress test your, um, your budget would be number one. Then to look for areas where you can afford houses and houses in middle ring or inner suburbs where they're diminishing the supply of houses for construction. I mean, the obvious way to improve you know, the value in your home is to buy where there's 100 houses this year and there's only going to be 70 next year because 30 of them are getting knocked over for townhouses. And then you're tapping into that supply-demand equation. And if we can have great education, if we can have a lifestyle driver like a terrific high street or next to you know, a, a highly regarded parkland, those type of X factors are always going to bring demand to the area. And what we typically see is those, they're the regions where properties hold their value in downturns. And that's really best case. If you can make money when it's going up and you can hold when it's going down, you're always pretty safe. And look, in our opinion, we like to stick to major regional centres that have got 100,000 plus people. But look, these COVID times have even thrown that out. A lot of these smaller towns and areas have really boomed on the back of unaffordability and people chasing you know, space over, over location. Um, so I think the key thing is be careful with those regions because it is, this is one of the first times we've seen regional and capital cities all rise together. And it has been a market where everything's risen at once, Northern Territory, Perth, a lot of places that were seen to be really uh, risky for residential investment if you're, if you're not from there. So I think the key thing now is just to be really mindful that even though everything's rising at the same time and almost to the same levels, this is not normal. And there's a very good chance in the next property cycles we see that we won't have the whole market rising together. So in our opinion, we stick to the bigger cities, more denser population, more diversity in employment, stick to houses where possible and where you can afford them, and also stick to middle or inner ring suburbs where they're diminishing the supply. Yeah, I know they've got, particularly out in the regional areas, that um, little hobby farms, people living from those cities are buying because they can't travel out there because they're in lockdown, buying them sight unseen, spending a couple of million dollars on on places around regional centres. I know that's that's definitely happening. And you said before the supply of houses, um, that's what, a big part of what's driven the price up and as they become unaffordable for people, do you see apartments and townhouses, are they going to follow or yeah. what parts yeah. of the market? Yeah, that's going to be a fascinating move. I think just back to your first statement there around the hobby farms, it is amazing. Like I thought we'll pass the, the handy generation. I know my parents grew up on farms and everyone was so handy uh, and that definitely got lost in the, the my generation coming through. So I think, hobby farm would be nothing but risk for me. So we probably should yeah, consider whether they're going to be sustainable, I think, as well over the long term. It is a pretty interesting trend. Uh, but, yeah, look, I think the opposite to the hobby farm, which is the higher density, it is fascinating to see because I think, you know, a lot of um, probably Canberrans and also I know Melbournians say this, you know, we're building too many. And then you've got this other end of the spectrum, which is housing unaffordability. But when you look at, Melbourne as a landscape, I mean, if we use it as an example, you could buy one or, or a two-bedroom apartment between four and 500 grand. So that's a global city where property prices have been extremely high for a long time now, where you could still live in the heart of the city in a unit. If you go to somewhere like Vancouver or Hong Kong or LA or Singapore or any of these other um, markets that are, tend to be put on the same playing field as like a Melbourne or Sydney from a prices point of view, and probably Canberra's up there now as well, you actually need the high density to create affordability. So it's definitely not everyone's first preference property. Um, and most people only default to it because they can't afford everything else, but that's essentially why it's there. And obviously 
the other aspect is to stop governments having to widen roads and build more train stations because everyone's living closer and it's more of a walkable walkable um, location. So I think when you look at that, um, the supply that's coming through, apartments are there for affordable housing, therefore they're always going to be affordable. So if you're buying them to make money, the problem is the government's job is to make sure they don't rise too much, so they're going to keep improving more and more and more. So I think they serve a purpose to put a roof over someone's head, but they definitely don't um, don't serve a purpose in in profitability. Yeah, that's some really interesting points there. I hadn't thought about that in the past. So, Julian, where are you focusing on, mate? What's uh, What regions is your team looking at now? The key thing for us is it's all about understanding the client's portfolio as it sits at the moment because some clients are saying, look, we've got a lot of property in Canberra and we want to diversify. And then the conversation becomes around, you know, how far they're happy to, to stretch um, their minds and where they're open to looking and where they're not open to looking. So some people say, we've got family in Brisbane, we're open to it because we understand it. Other people say, look, we, we travel down to Melbourne a bit for different events, so we've got a bit of a feel for it, so therefore that's our next secondary location. And that is an important part. I think any financial advisor you speak to would often say, don't invest in something you're uncomfortable with, and property is no different to that. Um, then the next piece, as we talked about before, is really that affordability aspect. Everyone's got a very different budget, different cash flow capability. But if you were to say to me, look, we've got you know, $500,000 to invest in a residential property, where would you look? I mean, we do look at places like Bendigo's and Ballarat's in Victoria, regional centres with north of 150,000 people that are really booming off the back of them being very livable townships and very commutable places from Melbourne. Um, so that's more of a lower price point investment choice. I mean, if you're in that 750 to, to a mill range, I mean, Brisbane's got some terrific middle ring suburbs, places like Mount Gravatt and Mansfield, on the south side where you've got really high ranking education catchments, or even on the north side around Chermside and Aspley, uh, freestanding houses, Chermside's a major activity centre, huge Westfield, lots of infrastructure going in, and you're getting pretty decent 3.5% yields in those locations. Um, so there are a couple of options price point wise. If you're getting into the to the ones and the one and a half mills, I mean, the, you get a plethora of options then, and I mean, you, you'd probably argue Canberra's on the radar. Where would you put one point $5 million in Canberra at the moment, Andrew, if you had that to invest. Yeah, that's a tough call. Living in Canberra, I know the market well. Uh, exactly as you've touched on, uh, places where there's access to good education, good health care, uh, close to, to good travel corridors, uh, and looking at the fundamentals of the investment. Isn't it pretty much all over Canberra, I would say? <laughs> You're not that big. <laughs> Right there, young. So, Julian, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute and there's probably a ton more questions that our listeners have. Uh, We will get them to email to talkbig at rsm.com.au and if you're happy to take questions, uh, listeners can send them through and we'll get uh, get those questions answered. Guys, that's about it for today. Uh, thank you very much, Julian. Some some great ideas on property. It's uh, as I said, it's everyone's favourite topic at the moment. So thanks for your time today. It was great to be here, guys. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Thanks. Well. Listeners, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. You can do that on your favourite podcast platform or you can go to rsm.com.au forward slash talk big and subscribe or you could submit some questions to us there. Uh, my name's Andrew Sykes and we will talk to you next time on the RSM Talk Big podcast. Talk Big. Create, save and protect with RSM.